Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Matthew 12. When they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see, All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Matthew chapter 21. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Matthew chapter 22, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. You see what the gospel writers are saying. And that is, if you don't understand who David is, you're never going to understand who Jesus is. I don't know if you've ever had the occasion to walk somebody through the gospel, especially somebody who who really doesn't understand who Jesus is. And I've done this many times and will go through the book of John typically. And I find myself so often getting stuck because there's so many Old Testament references that if you don't understand what has happened, we can just sort of read by it and not understand what's going to happen or what's been told that is taking place right now. And really that's what we're doing in this Advent season, this series We're asking ourselves, if you're going to try to tell somebody about Jesus, where would you begin? Do you begin in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1 at the birth of Christ and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men? Where do you begin when you want to say, well, Jesus is, who is he? How do I start talking about him? And what we've said is that there's a a kind of historical momentum to Jesus' life, just like most of our lives. There are people or things that have happened long before we were born that actually shape who we are, who we become. And we read about those things from the, the Old Testament. And we read a number of them in different areas. In the last few weeks, we've talked about Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and this morning we'll talk about David. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the king, this is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Let's put this in context. Let's understand what's happening here. This is a time of peace for the kingdom of Israel. You remember that there were were the prophets, and then there was the, the judges, And the judges ruled over periods of time, and then there was a time for the kings. And there was three kings in Israel's history that reigned over the united kingdom of Israel. That's Saul, David, and Solomon. And so what has happened in these previous chapters is Saul and David have had this sort of ongoing battle. And finally, Saul is dead, and his son, who was supposed to take the throne, is dead. And all of that uh, battle has been taken away. So now it's just David. He's the king. 
So the internal conflict has been taken away. Secondly, if you just look back to chapter 5, you see that he's defeated the Philistines. He's defeated the surrounding enemies. So we've got peace on the inside. We've got peace on the outside as well. And finally, in chapter 6, verse 1, the Ark of the Covenant, this place where God resides, where he sits, where he comes to be with his people, David has brought that back to Jerusalem. So we've got all these things coming together in chapter 7, verse 1, to say, okay, finally, after all this time, there's peace. And because there's this peace, David has a chance to do some evaluation. So he looks around, and what does he first notice? Hey, I'm living in this great house. It's, it's made out of cedar. It's made out of this terribly expensive wood and and i'm the king and i'm living in this house and i look over and see where god is and what is he in he's in a tent i mean that just doesn't seem right this is the the tent that has been going through the wilderness with moses remember the tabernacle they're supposed to build this elaborate tent but it's still a tent and it's maybe hundreds of years old i don't know if you'd want to be in a tent maybe just after a weekend you don't want to be in a tent but after a few hundred years, you're, the, you're, you're over the tent. And David is saying, how is it that I can live in this nice part of the city, in a nice house with cedar? And I look and see where God is living, and he's living in a tent. We've got to do something about that. So he goes and finds his spiritual advisor, a guy named Nathan. And he wants to run the idea past Nathan. And Nathan is probably, as a prophet, probably somebody who's working out of the tent. And so when he comes to Nathan, the wealthiest person in his congregation, and says, hey, preacher, what I'd like to do is build God a house. What does the preacher say? Do all that is within your heart. I mean, I think that's just a very, sounds just like a very pious way of saying, yes, this is the easiest capital campaign ever. We've just got the one rich guy who's going to come in and say, I'll build it. The pastor just can't go, yes! Why haven't you been paying attention all this time? He's got to say, whatever's in your heart. But you know when he gets back in, he's going, yeah, build that thing. And then verse 4. God comes to Nathan. And I don't think they had any bad plans. I think David made a correct assessment. Nathan probably thought this seems like a good time and we're at peace. But it wasn't the Lord's plan. And so God comes to Nathan and he says, I need you to go back to David and say, you got it wrong. Answer is no. And he gives all this explanation of all the verses that we read through verse 16 of this is a long way to say no. But when we read God's response, we learn a great deal about God. We also get to see Jesus. And at the end, after we put those two things together, I want to draw a few applications, application points. For the, so the first thing I want to look at is just when you read through this answer that the Lord gives to Nathan, and he's supposed to go deliver this answer to David, what do we learn about God? Verse 6 and 7. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, I brought you up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, 
did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to be to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? The, the first thing we learn about God, the God of the Bible, is he's a God who wants to be with his people. The first thing that you learn in this particular passage, and you learn in a number of others, is that this is a God who longs to be with his people. He's making every effort to get to his people and live with them. Tim Keller calls this the incarnational principle. It's, it's one of the main themes throughout the whole Bible. It's one of the most amazing characteristics demonstrated about God in the Bible is that we're serving a God who's constantly trying to get towards his people. In fact, the Bible is a book that says this is how God's trying to get to you. It's not a book that you read and say, this is how I get to God. When you read the Bible, what you discover is that God's coming towards me. He's always moving towards me. It's not an instruction manual saying, I feel at some distance, I better read the Bible and see if I can get to God. You read the Bible and you say, He's coming to me. It catches everybody off guard constantly through the Bible that He's constantly coming towards them. Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man. Adam and Eve, what do they try to do? They try to hide. And after they hide, what do they discover? God's walking in the garden. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I'm, I'm coming for you. We saw a few weeks ago, Genesis chapter 28, Jacob the deceiver, the one who had cheated his brother, had lied to his dad, and now he's running away and he falls asleep in this place in the middle of nowhere. And what does he dream about? He has this dream that God is coming towards him. Joshua, who is the one who's going to lead the people into Canaan, and he's afraid of the battles that lie ahead, God comes to him and says... As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. A couple of years ago, we were going through the book of Jeremiah, very beginning of the book. The young man, Jeremiah, is being called to be the preacher, and he's going to preach against his own people. He's not called to preach against the people on the outside. He's called to preach against the people on the inside, the pew sitters. How'd you like to have that job? He's a young man, he's nervous, and God comes to him and says, They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you. I will rescue you. John chapter 1, we all know this word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you read it in um, Eugene Peterson's book, The Message, God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. You see, you get the idea. He's all the way through the Bible. What we learn about God is he's coming towards you. I think it's what catches uh, Zacchaeus by surprise. Remember Zacchaeus? He, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and says, I'd like to be with you today. And they go home and Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house. And what do all the religious people say? Why is he with him? I mean, does he not understand his reputation? See, it doesn't matter whether you're somebody who's spiritually very far away from the Lord or you feel like maybe I'm really in touch. Either way, when Jesus comes in and you find out he really wants to be with the worst kinds of people, you're caught off guard. 
You don't understand that God really is coming towards you. He's racing towards you with grace and mercy. And so we're surprised. Because in our mind we have the idea that uh, we're religious people. And religious people are trying to get to God. But when you read the Bible, you understand that Christianity is God's trying to get to you. The second thing we learn here in verse 8 through 11 is the God of the Bible is the one who first does things for his people. He's the God who's coming towards his people. And he's the God who's always first. He's the God who's coming to do things for his people, not first looking for people to do things for him. Verse 8. David, you remember I took you from a pasture and turned you into a prince? You remember you were, you were in the middle of nowhere and I just came out of nowhere and I, I plucked you out of this pasture and, I, and I've made you a prince. Verse 9, really stunning. You, you want to make my name great? David, you're here trying to make my name great? Guess what I'm, I'm about? I'm trying to make your name great. It's completely opposite of what you would think. And then he says, hey, David, you want to build me a house? Guess what? I'm going to do the reversal on you. I'm going to build you a house. It completely catches us off guard. You anticipate that David's doing what's a good thing. Yeah, this is the right thing. And I'm not even suggesting he has bad motives. He's trying to make a great name for God. And God comes to him and says, David. I'm going to make your name great. You're trying to build me a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. You see the, the nature and the character of God? He's not coming with a club. Every time you hit your head and you go, Wow, God, what did I do to deserve that? That's, that's religion pouring out of your pores. Thinking God's coming to get you in a bad way. He's coming to give to you. He's coming to pursue you. He's coming to pour out His grace on you. And, and it even preachers, it, we read the text and it, it catches us off guard. It's totally a reversal of what we would think. We know from this particular time in history that in many ancient, ancient cultures it was typical for a king who had had military success after he had sort of settled the affairs settled his area, and that there was peace, that he would build a temple. And he would build a temple to the God that he thought helped him have this success. And after he built the temple, then he would install a priest. And fairly typically, a priest then would return to the king and say to the priest, the God that you're serving sees that you, you have won these great battles. You have established a kingdom and now I'm going to establish your throne forever. You see how that works? See, yeah, I've done all these things. I've won these wars. I've established this kingdom. I've established this boundary. So now I'm going to build a temple. And once all that's in place, this priest representing the God that they're serving is going to come and say, now that you've done all that, now I'm going to establish your name forever. And in the Bible, it's com the complete reversal. You see, all religions aren't the same. 
Christianity is turning religion upside down. In religion, God builds a house and blesses you after you do something for Him. In Christianity, God is coming to you. He's giving you a great name. He's building you a house apart from anything that you've done. The theological term for that is grace. You see how everything gets turned upside down. What we imagine is that we're going to go out and do something and perform. And because the basis of our performance, God's going to bless us. God's going to give us something. And we see right here, it's, it's the complete reversal. I'm coming toward you. You're not coming towards me. I'm coming to give you a name. I'm coming to establish you a house. I'm, I'm coming to do everything for you. I'm always moving first. And you see that throughout the Bible. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. To put it another way is... Uh, Christianity is not about achieving, it's about receiving. So we learn that about God. We, we learn that He's a God who's coming towards us. We learn that He's coming towards us in grace. It, it surprises us every time. And in verse 12 through 16, we learn about God's strength, the strength of God's commitment. I mean, if He's coming towards us, if He's coming towards us with grace... And he captures us. I mean, can he hold on through all circumstances? When you read these verses, and let's look at them together, starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when you're dead, I'm going to be able to establish your kingdom. Verse 14, I will be a father even when you commit iniquity. When you're dead, I'm going to still establish your kingdom. When you sin, I'm going to still establish your kingdom. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever and ever. Do you see the enemies here? God's going to build something and he's saying to us, death can't destroy what I'm going to build. Sin cannot destroy what I'm going to build. Time cannot destroy what I can build for you. D David has some idea of a temple, something that's physical, something that's not going to last forever. And God comes to him and says, David, I have something completely different in mind. What I have in mind is a dynasty. And one that's going to last forever. My dynasty is going to defeat death. My dynasty is going to defeat sin. Even when you're crooked. Even when your, your love moves away from me. My love is never going to move away from you. And you can be sure that your, your house is going to be established in verse 16 forever. Even time itself will not be able to defeat our God. And when you, when you see these three things, that God's up to something here that David doesn't see. 
He's going to establish something through someone, some offspring to say, I can defeat death, I can defeat sin, and I can defeat time itself. You already know now who he's pointing to. He's pointing to Jesus. Who's going to be able to accomplish these things? Who's going to be strong enough to conquer all of these things in my life? And David tells us, or God tells us in 2 Samuel, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is the true king who defeats death when he rises from the grave. Jesus is the true king who defeats sin when he goes to the cross. Jesus is the true king who defeats time because his kingdom shall reign forever and ever. He's not just the son of David, but who is Jesus? He's also the son of God. And you've heard it, you've seen it many times, especially this Christmas uh, season, Handel's Messiah, the, the final chorus. Probably you've seen somebody sing you this on YouTube. You've seen this where they have these planted people in the mall. How many of you have seen, you've seen this? Lots of you. Because when I get it, I figure I'm pretty much on the dinosaur category. I'm the last one to receive this. But they have, I don't know, a hundred people planted in the food court of the mall. And somebody starts singing Handel's Messiah, and then all these people pop up. And it's really great because all the patrons are like, wow, this is awesome. And a lot of them stand up and start singing. And you know the very last, the hallelujah chorus, where you're supposed to stand at the end of this great song. And it says, King of kings, Lord. It's so powerful, especially when I'm singing it right now. You're moved, are you not? To tears of terror. Please do not ruin it in my mind, King of kings, Lord of lords, and what? And he shall reign forever. I mean, just you just you just go, yes! That's the king I'm serving. He he's gonna reign forever and ever. Why? He's not just the son of David, he is the son of God. And because he is the son of God, he can defeat time itself. There is no time that he cannot win over. There is no sin that he cannot conquer. And he will conquer your own death because he conquered death himself. And so we get this picture of God. He's he's moving towards us constantly. No matter what you've done, no matter how far away you feel, he's constantly coming towards you. And he's not coming with a club. He's coming with his arms wide open saying, I'm looking for you. And nothing's going to separate that. No sin, no time, no death. Amen. And see, when you, under, when you grasp that, when you begin to really see it, you see it all the way through the Bible and it begins to shape how you think. Then it begins to shape how you live your life. So I want to close with just a few points of application. If the King of Kings is coming to identify with His people, then what is He expecting you and I to do? If the King of glory is coming down to identify with the worst kind of person, and when I say the worst kind of person, here's who you should be thinking about. Not like the person next to you. 
He is coming down to associate himself with the worst kind of person. People like you. And if he's coming and accommodating himself and he's coming all the way down, then the people who follow after him, what is he going to be asking those people to do? To to live lives that are on a downward trajectory. To have this incarnational approach to be moving towards people. Most of you know I was involved in a ministry uh, called Young Life to high school students. And the strength of the ministry itself was this incarnational approach. We would spend time going to the high school or going to a game or moving towards high school students. And for the most part, they didn't really get it. I mean, they might have appreciated it, but you never really got a big response back to understand, you know, what you were doing and why you were doing it. Most of the time they just thought, Paul doesn't have a life, so he might as well hang out here with me. Or he has trouble making friends his own age, so, you know, here he is. And, you know, you just don't get a lot of good feedback, but occasionally somebody sort of picks up on it and they understand, hey, I understand what this person's been trying to do. And I remember being at one of the last Young Life, it was the last Young Life Club for the year. And at the last Young Life Club, you give these seniors a chance to stand up and say thank you to their leaders or whatever, just we appreciate what you've done. And this one guy stands up and he says... Uh, Paul, I I just want to thank you for what you've done. And and what really, really blows me away was that you would come to the cafeteria and sit at my table. I just cannot believe that. Because none of us wanted to be there. All of us were working angles on how can we get out of this place? And what we discovered is you were coming towards us. And you came and you sat in the place we didn't want to be. And so I'm asking you, where where is that happening in your life? If the king of kings is coming down to accommodate himself to you, the worst kind of person. He is going to be asking his followers to do the same kind of thing. J.R. Packard in in the book Knowing God speaks very sharply about this. He says, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more than sentimental jollity. Yet it should carry a tremendous weight. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world seeing human needs all around them, but avert their eyes and pass by on the other side. There are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making a nice middle-class Christian friend, bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways, only to leave the sub-middle class sections of the community to get on by themselves. The real Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who live their lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent just like their master.
So, so if you see the beauty of God coming towards you, if you understand He's racing towards you, He's racing towards you in grace. And nothing's going to separate you. Then how is it that's being replicated in your life? Where is it you're doing the same? Second point of application. Have you really come to terms with grace? Real, really? Or are you still trying to earn it? I mean, you know, nobody maybe would know it, but you, you do these little things. Yeah, God, God's going to like that one. <laughs> I'm going to get something for that. You just, in your mind, you have these little games of, I just don't really understand grace. I'm really sort of at my core. I'm still a religious person. I'm still trying to somehow earn God's favor. And so I, I just can't seem to get out of that. And maybe just your application point is, I just need to revisit this and understand the grace of God and let that flow into the deepest parts of my life. And occasionally I run into people who just can't come to terms with grace because they sort of live like the prodigal son. They really do understand the gospel. And they have come home and the father has come out. And they understand that they can articulate it. But when the father says, take the robe, take the ring, take the shoes. They go, oh, I just, I'm better off being a servant. I just can't, I can't really take the grace. I can't really live in that grace. I, I just need to still be like a servant. And they live with some kind of, of cloud over their lives. Thinking, no, I, it, you know, my, I'm somehow special. My sin is just too big. He couldn't possibly use someone like me. That's just a lie. Probably a lie that comes out of pride and arrogance. Are you somehow too big for the cross? Is your sin so special that Oh, he can save King David, who was an adulterer who killed somebody. But, oh gosh, you know, I'm just in this. No, you're not unique. You're terrible. Everyone is. You're, you're the worst kind of person. That's who he's here to save. That's who he came for. He came for murderers and adulterers and the worst kind of people. So you have to understand, I'm the worst kind of person. And once you understand that and you say, He's giving me His coat, He's giving me His ring, and I can live underneath the grace, and who knows what God might have for you out there. But you miss it because you really don't believe it's for you. It's for the person beside you. It's for the pastor. It's for some of the people in the Bible. But that grace is really not for me. Final point of application since Christ defeated death, He is the King who's reigning over this world right now. He has overcome the worst things in the world. And He can turn the worst things in the world into something beautiful and good. Then you can, as His child, live in 
utter and complete confidence that he's in control. If he's been able to do this, whatever may be happening in your life, he's able to take care of it. And you should be able to live as a child of the king without a lot of worry and anxiety. So you might just put your little gauge on and ask yourself, what's my worry anxiety meter saying? Martin Luther understood that worry was a form of wanting to rule the world. Let me say that again. Martin Luther used to say that worry was a form of wanting to rule the world. Why is that? If I'm worried about something, what am I saying? I'm not sure God's got it all right. I don't know if he's big enough to see this. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe I'm smarter than he is. There's all kinds of ways that leaks out in our lives. And he had a friend named Philip who used to be a worrier. And he would come up to Philip and he would put his hands on his shoulders and he wouldn't say, Philip, don't worry. Because that doesn't work. Worry me? Oh, no, I'm not worrying. He would come up and say, Philip, let Philip cease to rule the world. And maybe that's what you need to hear. You can insert your name. Maybe you just need to cease ruling the world for a little while. God's got it in his hands. Jesus is the king. He's the true king. He's the one whose throne will be established forever. So he is over all time. He is the one who's taken your sin. So he is bigger than your whole sin. All of your sin. And he is the one, even though you're running away from him, he's faster than you. And he's coming towards you. And when you really understand this, it works its way out in your life. How you live towards other people. How you live yourself in this world. Let's pray together.